A few years ago, um, Nicole uh, and I took the two boys, our two boys, to um, the, the, the Festival of Lights in Chickasha. And as a, there, if you, mostly, I'm sure many of you have been out there, and uh, out there there's, a, uh, there's different um, things to do. And one of the things to do is, is uh, they have some like amusement park type rides. It's a, there was a Ferris wheel. And um, I, Nicole got to ride the merry-go-round with the boys. And so I wanted to, I hadn't done a Ferris wheel in a long time. I wanted to go do the Ferris wheel with, with Jack. So we get on the Ferris wheel, and we're climbing up, and we're kind of cresting that first kind of climb to the top. And I start to feel sick. I start to get sweaty palms. I start to get short of breath. And I'm panicking because we are up so high on this Ferris wheel that I can see the metropolis of Chickasha. Um, and Jax is like, like, what's the deal, Dad? Like, he's five at the time, but he's, he knows it's, I'm real quiet. I'm trying to put on a, a tough face for my son and be the protector that I need to be on this Ferris wheel. Um, and... Um, yeah, I'm, 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 not, it's not, I'm not well up there. I started thinking about how, how would I have them stop this ride? How would I have them uh, ruin the fun that the, the four-year-old girl above me and the six-year-old boy below me are having right now to allow my 42-year-old self to get off this Ferris wheel? Like, I am, I'm really scared. Like, I'm going to fall tens of feet to my death from this giant Ferris wheel at the Festival of Lights in Chickasha, Oklahoma. Um, I was really scared. And, and I'm, this is from a guy who I, I have a couple of bungee jumps under my belt in my late teens. I like Heights never been a big deal for me. But it had been a long time since I had really gotten on any amusement park type ride. Anytime I'd been like in the open air in Heights. And realizing now that, okay, I have developed a fear of Heights. And I do not like being up high, even 50 feet, whatever, however tall that, maybe 100 feet, that Ferris wheel was. It was a little ridiculous that I was scared of this Ferris wheel. Now, there are certain things like a Ferris wheel that uh, a man in his 40s should not be fearful of, but there are things that we should be fearful of. And Solomon is going to touch on one of those things today. Listen to verse 1. And verse 7, these are bookends. We're going to read these together to begin with, to give us kind of to frame what Solomon's trying to tell us here. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So he has a location in mind. This is a worship gathering for God's people. And then verse 7, but God is the one you must fear. Okay? So Solomon's going to talk about fear today. How do we approach God in the context of worship? And what he's addressing here. And the fact that he's addressing this at all, he's saying that how we approach God in worship is of utmost importance. We shouldn't be flippant with it. We shouldn't see it in a peripheral way. This is a big deal to God. And Solomon, again, smartest man in the world at the time, he's not tackling these topics through this book with which is kind of in a, in a haphazard way. He's going through the things that the wisest man in the world really thinks that we need to know about and touch on, and today he's going to talk about worship. Fear in worship, I should, I should say. Now, fear isn't the only attitude that's appropriate in worship. 
It's not we should. There's a time to celebrate in worship with gladness and joy. There's a time to be loud. The scriptures even talk about dancing in worship. There are, there are other expressions of worship that we should have, but fear is definitely one of them. And I think today he's focusing on fear, so that's how we're going to spend our time as well. But I think fear can be brought into many of these other ways we worship, which I think you'll see how these pieces fit together uh, towards the end. Today, Solomon is going to talk about reverence in worship. Now, the, the question is why, right? Why should we fear God when we approach him? Why should we fear God when we come to him in the context of worship? Those of you who, even if maybe you're not Christians in this room, maybe you just kind of believe in God, you probably at least sense because of the fact that he's called God that there should be some level of fear as we relate to God. At some level, that wouldn't be hard to say yes to, but if I pressed you and said, well, why? Or, or like, what does this look like? If you're yes to the fear question, what does this look like? And I'm guessing many of you, or maybe most of you would have trouble coming up with like the words to say, well, this is why I should fear him. And this is why in the context of worship, we should fear him. And the Bible speaks to fear as it relates to God all throughout the scriptures. If you look for it, right, there's fear all throughout the scriptures and being afraid and being in God's presence and these types of things. And today, Solomon is going to take that idea of fear and really give us two practical ways to approach worship and in, in, in the presence of God. Right? But we're going to first focus on this idea of fear, and then we're going to focus all those verses in between verse 1 and verse 7 to let Solomon kind of spell that out for us. So let's talk about this idea of fear. Right? So back to verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard them. Be mindful. Pay attention. Now, this is a command, a direct command from Solomon. So Solomon's fellow Israelites, um, there, there, there's a problem he's addressing here. And you can read between the lines here. There's a problem that Saul, he didn't just pull this topic from thin air, right? He's addressing a problem that probably the fellow, Solomon's fellow Israelites, God's people, they've lost their sense of reverence as they've come into the temple, the house of God. Right? They were offering their sacrifices, Solomon says, but... The, the motivations, the heart behind the sacrifices were not pleasing to God. And this could be the same thing for us. It may not look the same as it did for them, but things like singing, giving financially to the church, serving in different aspects of the church on Sunday morning. These are sacrifices that we are offering to God. But he would say the same thing to us. If our hearts aren't in it, that's what God cares most about. There's a problem if we're those things become mechanical if we're just going through the motions, if we're doing those things for poor motivation. Now, if you're here and you're not a normal churchgoer and, and maybe you have a problem with the church, maybe you have a problem with coming to church gatherings, that they're, they're, they're awkward, they make you uncomfortable. And I get it because this is what Solomon's addressing here, right? Solomon is addressing the fact that we, we can say one thing and do another as God's people. We can be doing activity that looks good on the outside, but inside we can be far from him. But here's the deal. This, this place, even right now, this place is made up of sinners. This place is made up of sinners that need God's grace. God knows that. The scriptures know that. 
And we're going to see that this place, this time that we're worshiping right now is exactly the kind of place that sinners should be. So I just want to, I just want to give you some comfort if you're new to this space that this is, this is who we are. We're broken people in need of grace, and that's why we come to this kind of environment. So as we talk about fear, I, w- I hope you stick with us to, show, to, ha- to help the, the Scripture show you how fear can, can be a good thing in the life of a follower of Jesus. Because we struggle with the same things that the Israelites did. We come distracted. We have distracted hearts. We come to him with unprepared hearts on Sunday morning. We're scattered. We have our minds on other things. We sometimes come to God with what can, what can you do for me or what can this church do for me attitude instead of what can I give to you? What can I offer to you? We struggle with the same things the Israelites struggled with. Look at Exodus 3, uh, three 5 through 6. This is God speaking to Moses at the burning bush um, story in the Old Testament, okay? This is God speaking to Moses. He says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. This is the first time really Moses has had face-to-face interaction with God. Take, take, off, take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God's very specific, right? He says, take off your shoes, And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, a guy like Moses would have known his Old Testament. And any time God, like when when God introduces himself as the God of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was a massive, like, okay, this is the God of the Bible. This is Elohim. This is Yahweh. This is him. And, of course, Moses is like, "Uh uh-oh, okay. Then he goes in to hide his face. And he was afraid to look at God. But then we see later in a few, ver- few verses, a few chapters later, I should say, in Exodus, after the parting of the Red Sea and him rescuing, God rescuing the Israelites from um, Egypt, he says this in verse 6. He, Moses writes a song, and he's reflecting on the character of God. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Moses recounting when the Red Sea kind of parted and then went back over the Egyptian army. When we think about the character of God, there are many things that describe him that don't describe us. Theologians call this list of things the incommunicable attributes of God. The things that he possesses that we, but do, that we don't possess as human beings. And when we see those things about God and reflect on, how, on our characteristics, there's a gap there, a massive gap. And when we observe and reflect on that gap, it should produce at least some measure of awe, of reverence, of even fear. He is holy in everything he does. And most of us sin this morning. He is all-powerful, and we have trouble balancing our daily responsibilities. He is self-sufficient, and we are utterly, utterly dependent upon him for every breath we take in his goodness and grace. Like, he is different than us in so many ways. So when a human approaches God, we should, be, we should tremble. We should fear him. We should be thinking about these attributes 
And it should just strike us that he is, he is different than us. We are smaller than him. And that's a good place, as we'll see in a second, for humans to be if we do the right thing with it. Listen to Matthew 10, 28. This is Jesus speaking to his people about persecution. He says this, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, another human being, right? But rather, fear him who can destroy, who has the power, Jesus is saying, to destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? Even Jesus, from the mouth of Jesus, you should have reverence. You should, you should fear God. There's some level of fear that we should have before God. Left up to our own goodness, our own morality, our own record of good deeds that we show God, we can't come into his presence. We can't. He, it, we, we will be consumed by his holiness. We see this throughout the Old Testament, especially, that we, can't, we don't belong in his presence because of the differences in our morality. He is holy. We are not. We should fear him. There's another angle or kind of fear that I think that I think Solomon probably has even more in mind in this passage. And maybe you could call it a more healthy kind of fear, um, more familial kind of fear. Um, this is not a fear of punishment. Like if you turn away from God, he's going to strike you down. But a fear that is produced because all the good God has done for us in him. So this is especially reserved for people who put their faith in him, who are united to him, who have the Holy Spirit uh, dwelling inside of them, who call themselves children of God. Yes, there is a kind of fear, but it's a, it's a different kind of fear. It's a fear that's produced as in, a, in like a father and son relationship or a father and daughter relationship. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah in 33 verses 8 and 9. It says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Speaking of his people. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory. Before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provided for it. So God provided good. He did good on behalf of the, the Israelites. He was faithful to them. He forgave them. He showed up for them in grace and mercy. And because of all the good things that he did for them, that's why he says they will fear him. Yeah, this is the healthy kind of fear that a child has for their father, rather than a kind of fear that a slave has for their master. It's a different kind of fear. It's, an ex it's a kind of fear that is experienced when you are the beneficiary of something with, of, of infinite value, and that comes from someone that has an infinite amount of power. Your, your mind's just blown about what God has done for you, therefore it produces awe, reverence, and fear. Listen to Psalm 133 through 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Like if you... If you counted all the iniquities, if you punished all the iniquities of God's people, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. No one. No one could stand before God if you counted them, if you remembered them. If there wasn't a way for us to escape those punishments. Listen to verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness 
that or so that you may be feared. So the forgiveness that God shows us produces fear. And it's a healthy kind of fear. It's, it's the, a fear that Solomon would speak of in this passage. So when we understand that as human beings that we deserve wrath for our rebellion against God, and instead of receiving that wrath, we receive forgiveness. And the psalmist says that is the thing that produces the kind of fear that is healthy, that we should want to have as followers of Jesus. The kind of fear that we should have when we approach God in a context of worship. Do you have a better illustration here? Look at Luke 18, verse 9. This is Jesus kind of setting up this scenario for the Pharisees. He was speaking to them. This is the context. They're listening. He's talking to his disciples. He says this. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous. And because of that, they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, the, the self-righteous one, stood off by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. I'm looking down upon them. The extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, the really bad ones. Even like this tax collector, even kind of points him out. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I can get, all those sacrifices that Solomon's going to address. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off, kind of on the peripheral of the temple, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, the tax collector, rather than the other. The other one didn't. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. As we think about the tax collector in this situation, I think we could say that he had some measure of fear, right? Like this is what godly fear produces. Coming to a place where you, you, you're, you're, you're careful to lift up your head. You're careful to gaze upon God. You know your place. And you're so thankful that you would be forgiven because you don't deserve it. Sam Storm says this about kind of this idea Forgiveness, as much as any act of God, reveals his incomprehensible greatness and majesty. The infinitely transcendent God of holiness and truth has acted in grace on behalf of hell-deserving sinners. Once this reality of this is fully grasped, the only reasonable response is one of brokenness, humility, and breathtaking awe. At such amazing love. It's like if you were a follower of Jesus, you come into a place like this week after week, the consistency, the faithfulness of God's grace is amazing. Like it's crazy to think about that we can come in here every week and hear about God's grace and that that's not changing every week, even though we're changing all throughout the week. Our, our feelings towards God, our relationship, our subjective relationship before God feels like a roller coaster. All. I know mine does, but to come in here and hear the gospel and know the truth and say, this is who God is, this is what Jesus has done, and, that, and that's stagnant, that's stable, that's a rock. That is such a comfort to know that, the consistency of that. But this is also a danger. This is also a danger. Think God's grace can become so familiar 
It can be co- so we can come in here and know what we're going to hear every week. Yes, we're going to hear the gospel. We're going to hear the word preached. We're going to sing some great songs with amazing truth. That can become mechanical. We can lose the awe. We can lose the reverence. We can lose the, the imagining us standing before God without Jesus' righteousness. And that, that, that kind of trembling in fear and being so thankful that he has saved us apart from anything that we've done. God's grace can cease to knock us on our knees if we're not careful. God's grace and his mercy are scandalous because we are undeserving. While we were yet sinners, he accepted us. While we turned our backs on him and hated him, in that moment, God sent us his best, and that was his son. Even at our worst, he sent his best. We can't forget this. We can't forget the radical, amazing grace that God has shown us in Christ. Every week we come in here, we can't forget that. If we come in here and we cease to to, to not be uh, awed by that anymore, there's not this reverence and this amazement of what God has done for us in Jesus, there's a problem. And this is where God's people are at in Solomon's time. This is what he's coming after them for. Where's your heart? Where's your worship? Where's your reverence for what God has done for you? So, as children, forgiven by God the Father, come, we come into this place of worship. What are the things we need to look out for? What are the things that we need to be mindful of as we come into this place? And I think this teases up well for the, the next few verses we're going to look at in this particular chapter. So let's read this quickly, and we'll kind of highlight a few things here. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen, there's a key word there, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. They don't know. They don't know any better. They don't know their hearts are far from them necessarily, from God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven And you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. So it seems like the the, the heart behind, one of the things, he focuses on listening here. One of the keys, when you come into the worship space, listen. Don't talk too much. Listen. Listen to what God wants to do. Listen to his word. Listen to his voice. Listen Listen to kind of his presence, his spirit, right? This is what Solomon's wanting them to do. It seems like that they were talking too much as a part of their this sacrifice of fools that he says it's evil yes it was kind of empty worship and activity but there was also a sense that they were probably talking too much this is what solomon's addressing here their words were empty and he cautions us to listen more and be careful with our words we should approach god with attentiveness right god makes moses take his sandals off right this is how attentive god is to worship it is a fool who enters God's presence haphazardly or without intentionality. We listen well. In, in the garden, Adam and Eve, one of their things that led them astray was they were listening to the wrong voice. They were listening to the words of the serpent and not the words of God. They ceased to listen to God's words. Listening is important. The Israelites throughout the Old Testament are called stiff-necked people. Why? Because they didn't listen to the commands of God. 
God calls him out on that. Jesus in his teachings, we, if you pay attention, he talks about hearing and listening all the time. Let him who has ears, let him listen, Jesus says. He talks about sheep hearing the shepherd's voice. We listen, right? Listening leads to understanding, and we know understanding leads to transformation. And that's what we want. We want to be transformed. In verse 2, we hear he says, do not be rash with your mouth, right? He said, mind your words. Remember what you say. We're going to be held accountable for the words we used, especially in the context of worship. There are 90 proverbs that speak to how we use our words. And God hears not only our words, but he also sees through those words to our hearts. Jesus says in, a, in one place, he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever comes out of the mouth, it starts in the heart. God cares about the heart. Then we see in verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So here again, he's continuing on kind of giving some, 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 uh, some kind of direction for worship, right? We know that we're to listen. We're to keep quiet and listen more. We're also to be careful what we say, be careful what we promise. We don't vow a lot in our everyday life, but I think the principle behind this is be careful with the promises you make. When you come in here and you say, this is who I am, or this is what I'm going to do, or I'm going to do this this week, like we need to take that commitment to God with some reverence, right? Solomon is simply saying that, um, but do what you say you're going to do. Like, follow through what you say what you're going to do. And, and, and even to the point that live like the person you claim to be. Like, if you would come into this space and we say, hey, we're followers of Jesus. We want to worship him. And then we look different when we leave this place. That's a problem. Right? Out of the love and forgiveness that he's shown us, we're, we, we, should, we should strive to obey. We should have a desire to obey. Now, this doesn't mean that we go out and we, we act like we're perfect because we're not. That's part of being who you are, right? We admit, hey, we're going to go out and we're going we're gonna to strive to obey him through, through, through uh, faith, right? But we fail. So we say, hey, we're going to be people that are quick to repent. We use this space as a time to repent and acknowledge that, hey, we fall short. We need help. We need God's grace and his mercy in a continual way. That is admitting who you are. That's, pre that's part of, of, of living, of walking the walk out um, when we leave this place, right? So, Application, what does this look like? Okay, so he's given us, listen more, be careful with what you say as you enter the context of worship, right? And that helps produce this holy fear, right? This, 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 um, this healthy fear. Here are a few things that I would say that would help us as we enter, to this, in, enter this place. This could go for a quiet time. This can go for your GC gatherings. But I think most specifically, Solomon's probably thinking a worship gathering. I think under the, uh, it all kind of flows from this idea of being intentional. Like, are, are you intentional? Are we intentional when we come into this place? Right? And one way of being intentional is to prepare ahead of time. Like, do you prepare yourself for coming in here at 10 a.m.? Or do you kind of come in here and you kind of, kind of, oh, it's 10 a.m., like, it's, it's time to go, right? Like, we, like, do you prepare yourself? And I know um, that's hard for, for some of you, right? Maybe, maybe it's thinking about things the night before. Maybe it's reading the passage that, you, that we're going to preach the night before, just becoming a little familiar with it. Maybe it's spending some time in prayer the morning of. 
Maybe it's spending time um, as a family and a little devotional around breakfast on Sunday morning to prepare your hearts. Now, if you're like us and have kids, young kids, I maybe caution doing that. It could, it could work the other way, right? It can make you not focus on God. It could be a, ca- a, a cause for sin on Sunday mornings, which is often the case for us um, leading to church. So for us, it's probably best to prepare the night before, right, for our hearts coming into that. But the bottom line is, do we prepare ourselves for worship? Like, do we kind of metaphorically take off our sandals like Moses did as he approaches God? Number two is listening. How do we, are we listening to God when we come into this place? All throughout the worship service, we're, it's structured for you to hear the voice of God. There's this rhythm of listening, and then we respond. We listen, and then we respond. You see that in Confession Assurance. You see that in the songs. We listen to the sermon, and we respond with communion, right? There's this, there's this rhythm of, of, of God speaking through his word or through the song, and we respond. Are we listening to that? Right? It's so easy for us to be distracted by other voices. Some of us listen to the voice of our sin. Some of us listen to the voice of, of, of Satan. Some of us listen to the voice of our past or our mom or our dad, and those voices aren't the truth. We need to hear the voice of the scriptures, the voice of the gospel that speaks the truth over us. It's a big part of what we do here. We listen for the truth and respond to that. So we prepare ourselves, we listen, and we respond in praise. We are who we say we are. We, we're followers of Jesus, and we love him, so we sing. Or maybe we pray, or we get down on our knees, and we confess that we don't have it all together, and we need his, more of his grace and presence this week. We want to be hearers of the word, not just hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. Okay? These are some things we can do as we approach God coming in to worship. Now, I want to close with, by reading... Um, just a part of the hymn, How Great Thou Art. The band's going to come up and play this here in a second. And so we're going to get a chance to practice this. But I want to read this and just how kind of that, that feeling of, of awe and reverence of what God has done for broken, rebellious sinners like you and I. And how that produces in us, that forgiveness produces in us a healthy fear, a healthy reverence. Listen to this. And when I think that God his son not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful once again for Ecclesiastes. I'm thankful for this, this topic of fear, as it's often, I think we, we, we don't think about it enough, we don't talk about it enough, we, we either don't want to talk about it or think about it, just kind of push it away, or we're consumed by it, and it's an, an unhealthy amount of fear. And I pray that we would be the kind of people who would remember what you've done for us, that we would remember your holiness, and that we fall short. And then in that gap stood Jesus. He made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We've been forgiven. And that we have his righteousness. It's not anything we've done to earn our salvation. That is such good news. It's the kind of good news that produces awe, produces reverence, it produces fear. Because we can't imagine how our junk, our, our mess, our past, our sin... The, the things that we thought about or said, even this morning, 
how those things could be forgiven. That that awe and that reverence for your grace and your mercy would draw us to you. Would cause us to come into places like this and, and be expectant. To be expectant for you to move. Expectant for us to experience your love and your presence in a deeper way today. So help us. Help us be the kind of people that are formed, that are shaped by your grace and your mercy so that we come in here to a worship gathering and we experience more of your grace and we experience freedom and we experience joy in the moment, in this place, as a result of your grace found in your son. We love you and we love him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.